Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Sarah Bernstein about the latest developments at Imagine Documentaries and the way the market's changed since she left HBO five years ago. Night Train Media's Herbert L. Kloiber on the co-pro and co-financing specialist roadmap, Paper Cups' Amir Jibandi on the AI dubbing startups work with Fremantle and Jamie Oliver, and sort of creator and star Bilal Baig on ending the CBC Max comedy drama and representation within TV. Sarah Bernstein is president of Imagine Documentaries, the factual arm of Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's Imagine Entertainment, which she joined five years ago after helping steer HBO through two decades of award-winning features and non-fiction programming. At Imagine, she's been responsible for titles including The Volcano, Rescue from Wakari for Netflix, We Feed the People for Disney+, Lucy and Desai for Amazon Prime Video, and new Apple TV Plus series The Supermodels. Bernstein was among the keynote speakers at the MIA International Audiovisual Market in Rome last month and spoke there with Michael Picard about the latest developments at Imagine Documentaries and the way the industry has changed since she joined the company just as streaming began to transform the fortunes of non-fiction. So Sarah, just, I mean, you've been at the company well, four or five years now, so maybe About just five years. give us an intro into your job and, and yeah. what you've been up to. Sure. So we launched Imagine Documentaries for Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's Imagine Entertainment about five years ago. Um, and over the past five years, I would say we have built a very robust slate of documentary feature films and documentary series um, across all streaming platforms, network, theatrical distribution. Um, and I think really concentrating on projects that we can eventize, that will find a place in the cultural zeitgeist, um, and hopefully be you know, commercial successes for our distribution partners. Can you give us maybe some examples of what have been your sort of highlights of, of the year so far? Yeah, so we, um, we just premiered a documentary series with Apple TV Plus called The Supermodels, um, just back at the end of September, and that is a limited series that focuses on the original supermodels, Cindy Crawford, Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista, Christy Turlington, and it was an all-access um, project that really traced their career rise, um, kind of the collective experience that they all had as they were kind of making their mark in the industry, their own personal kind of journeys, and obviously their sort of um, combined impact in terms of, you know, how they were able to be game changers in the modeling industry and also in the fashion world. Yeah. And what was it? I mean, supermodels could have been, it could have been any kind of show, couldn't it? Or any kind of insight into that world. So what was it about this one perhaps that was suited Imagine, I guess, uh, as an insight into the kind of stuff you like to tell? Yeah. I mean, look, like I think what made sense for Imagine is that it was authorized. I think it was the access kind of came first, because you're right, I think anyone, not anyone, but you know, other production companies could have told a version of this story, but I think what was important for us was having the participation of all four women exclusively, and knowing that this was going to be the project, this was going to be their definitive project, I think was most important to us, and what we look for in our projects. Yeah, yeah. And, and so are there other examples you have of, of where you have sought, I guess, a, a unique point of view into a, a world that we might um, already be slightly familiar with? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, some of our previous projects um, over the past year and also projects that we have, or the past couple years and projects that we have coming up, I think sort of look for the same kind of access point. Um, we have another project that we are going to be doing um, or that Apple will be releasing next year that is quite American, but it is um, about the football team, the New England Patriots in the U.S., and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, and really the, that it's called, it's based on a book by Jeff Benedict called The Dynasty, just to give you an example. Um, so it really focuses on those years with Tom Brady um, and sort of the, the right before that and the immediate after that. And I think, again, for us, there was access that came with this project that was incredibly unique. That's important for us. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to just translate to big personality projects. I think it can also be um, projects that are, you know, about unknown people, but that there is something really unique to the point of view or the access into the into the situation or the story. I think a good example for us was a project that a film that launched on Netflix earlier this year called The Volcano that was directed by Rory Kennedy, which focused on a, a really a horrifically tragic um, event but a volcanic eruption off the coast of New Zealand, and the film tells the events of the day, but also focuses on kind of the aftermath and the incredible courage of the survivors. And um, to me, it's a wonderful triumph of the human spirit type project, while, you know, like I said, obviously a very deeply tragic story. But I think there was a way um, there was a presentation to that film that really had everything to do with um, the trust of the, the survivors and people who, were, who had experienced that day and also the you know, unique access of footage and resources that we were able to kind of tap into. So I think, I mean for me, documentary films or series, it's always about what is that unique access and what makes it different from anyone else being able to tell the story. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and so, you, you know, in terms of your career, you come from HBO, very successful career at HBO mm -hmm. to, to imagine. I mean, how have you just seen the landscape for docs and, and docs film and series just evolve over that time? Because um, as we speak, series, uh, sort of scripted series, they're having a bit of a rough time and there's a bit of a commissioning slowdown. So I wondered how you've seen maybe the, the doc tra trajectory sort of, you know, go against the grain for scripted. Yes, um, it's been a, an incredible proliferation over the past five years. When I left HBO, there were still few, uh, particularly in the US, streaming platform partners. Um, Apple was just launching, Amazon was sort of just launching. And now, obviously, we've seen, you know, Disney, we've seen Apple, we've seen Amazon, we've seen Peacock, we've seen Paramount. And it's been kind of an amazing time, I think, for nonfiction, because I think Netflix probably really set the bar first by, you know, basically positioning documentaries next to scripted projects in your feed, right? Like, the algorithm was feeding you a political documentary if you watched House of Cards back in the day. So... I think it was the first time that documentaries or nonfiction was recognized as 
kind of a business in the industry. So it's been kind of remarkable to see the growth spurt and opportunities, I think, for documentary filmmakers. I do think we are now, <laughs> we're at a tipping point, and I think we've seen, obviously, the slowdown on the scripted side. You know, there were obviously strikes, and strikes still happening. But I think that has impacted documentary production as well, because I think these platforms that have spent a lot of money over the past few years obviously are now looking at their budgets, they're contracting. And so I think the, in, the documentary industry or the production of documentaries also sort of has to adjust to that. And um, we'll see. I mean, we've obviously, we've seen key buyers disappear over the past couple of years, uh, over the past year really, as well, yeah. which, um, has presented challenges, I think. Yeah, I mean, what's it been like as a producer working in this streaming environment where they really have just been snapping up so much content and it must have been hard for you to, to keep up with the demand and, and is it a case then that all of a sudden it's just gonna sort of slow down dramatically and, and <laughs> it's sort of, not. you know, supply and demand is um, sort of out of balance? I think, like, like, I don't think we were ever struggling to keep up with the volume, I think we welcome the volume. Uh -huh. But I do think it's a moment where we do have to think about what are those projects that we're going to be developing, producing, what are the homes for those projects. I think we've seen an incredible um, desire and um, proliferation of sports documentary programming over the past year or two. And we're certainly looking at those projects in a way that maybe we hadn't had prior as aggressively. Um, so I think I think we, and imagine certainly me, um, I think I'm constantly thinking about like what are the mandates of our partners because we are producing mostly for the widest audiences possible. So we are very much in tune to what are the trends among you know places like Amazon where we have a first look for our feature docs, Apple who we you know have a great partnership with, Netflix we've produced a lot for. Disney is another um, great partner of ours, and what you know, what are they looking for? And those mandates are unfortunately forever shifting. But I think the one common theme or trend that we have seen is that these platforms are looking for projects that are going to resonate with the widest audience possible. And to be honest, that is a major shift, I think, in the documentary kind of genre or format over the past couple of years, because documentaries used to be, you know, a little more niche. Even if they were widely popular, there wasn't necessarily an expectation that a documentary was supposed to pull in a similar audience to a big hit like Succession or, you know, or... House of Dragons or something like that. And I think now these platforms, because documentary budgets have risen too, are looking at these projects as, you know, almost maybe not entirely equal, but, you know, there is a much higher expectation yeah. for um, viewership. You sort of mentioned the, the businessification, I guess, of yes. the doc world. Yes. I mean, how would you say the way, you know, maybe streamers have, have facilitated that, but how has making, just making a documentary changed and, you know, like you say, there's that expectation now of, of production value, but also access, you know, even greater access than there was before. Yes. How, how have you seen those changes and how does that change the way you do business now? Um, well, as I've said, I, we've certainly seen that change and I think it definitely affects our development and sort of what are these, what are the projects, who are the personalities, um, what are the sports teams, what are the true crime stories, 
that we are um, interested in developing or you know trying to access or package. I think the bigger the biggest challenge that we've seen is that whereas platform network partners, platform partners, streamers used to I don't want to say take a leap of faith, but I think with documentaries, it is access is always a rolling, evolving process, and I think access also comes with momentum. So whereas it was easier to have a streamer sign on to produce something, even if the access wasn't entirely locked, I think what we're seeing today are more steps, more hoops towards a green light, and I think. You know, it's it's. I I feel fortunate to be at a company like Imagine, where we have resources, we have funding, we can put money into securing access. But I think there's probably you know a lot of filmmakers out there, even other production companies, that necessarily don't have the same resources. So it becomes harder to secure access too. So to me, that is a big challenge. And then also, I think it's about the subject matter. I think this idea that. Documentaries are now have total parity in a way with scripted content, and even scripted content doesn't necessarily appeal to every viewer. Um, again, that it, that really shifts which types of um, projects are going to be appealing to places like Netflix, Amazon, Apple, and so on. You know, Max and so on. They're looking for stories that will certainly be universal, and they're looking for sensational headline stories that the audience is already aware of. Um, we see a lot of kind of retelling or unpacking of, you know, the kind of fake it till you make it, you know, combustible business story lately, like the GameStops of the world. So I think it has narrowed, essentially, sort of the, um, the subject matter mm-hmm. that will get financed. Yeah, definitely. And, and here at Mia, we've heard on the scripted side, particularly about how maybe producers are sort of learning to fall back in love with traditional broadcasters and traditional right. ways of working. <laughs> are you seeing that on, on the doc side? Are there those slots in, in the schedules, those old things, schedules that um, <laughs> people used to look at? I mean, or, or are you still mostly focused on the, the streaming space and that high-end yeah. cable sort of space? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I, look, I think I'd imagine we um, are very focused on our streaming yeah. platform partners, but I, I do think it is certainly a conversation within the documentary community about you know what are those different kind of avenues of distribution that will support social issue you know documentaries political issues social justice issues and how do we continue to get those projects out into the world if um, they're not being supported by the more mainstream streaming platforms yeah yeah. and so just in terms of your development I mean how are you bringing ideas in Um, how are you sort of I guess, uh, financing those to a certain stage? How are you pitching? Yeah. What's that process for you like? Um, we we generate quite a lot of content um, internally. We have a head of development, um, Erica Fink. We have like a, an amazing team. We have um, relationships with filmmakers like Dan Lindsay and TJ Martin, Rudy Valdez, Rory Kennedy, Sasha Jenkins are people who we really value a collaboration with. So we're constantly you know, feeding ideas off of off of each other. New filmmakers, we are always open to ideas from 
We certainly are mining IP. We have a partnership or a first look deal with the Washington Post that gives us early access to their stories and certainly their investigative stories, which I really value. And then of course, like I think over the past few years and certainly with our <laughs> our founders, Ron Howard and you know Brian Grazer and their relationships with um, the entertainment world, we definitely have been lucky enough to have access to kind of very high profile Talon, which um, the supermodels is a great example of that, which has also enabled us to, you know, to be able to access those types of projects. So it's, you know, I guess like what I have learned over my career is you never know where the next story is coming from. So we certainly remain open to pitches and filmmakers approaching us. But I think also understanding that the commissioning marketplace has narrowed in terms of like what are those projects they're looking for. I think we are definitely developing with a focus towards that. Yeah, and, and I guess supermodels would be an example of something you may have been thinking about a while and focusing on a, a period of time, but are you also quite reactive perhaps looking through the, the Washington Post and seeing what news headlines might make those buzzy sort of yes. docu-series that you yes. can turn around quite quickly? Yes, I think we're doing that, but so are other production yeah. companies. So those projects are, um, whereas they used to be easier to access, <laughs> yeah. I think they're becoming more challenging. I think there's also an expectation now in you know, just even people within people who participate in documentaries, that there are fees attached to that participation. And, you know, it raises, there are a whole level or, you know, there's been a whole introduction of kind of issues and challenges that come with, I think, chasing those sensational headline stories. But of course, there are, you know, people want to watch them. So we are aggressive about it. Yeah, yeah. And how, um, I just considering maybe duty of care perhaps to the people you you feature I mean how has that changed we've seen because it's been reality <laughs> shows that's been a big issue and how people are looked after after the event yeah. how is that something you consider and, and how do you kind of approach that when you're talking to talent about appearing on screen yeah I mean I think like we take that very seriously and and look like over the years certainly maybe even more so during my career at HBO but even I think in um, some of the projects that we've been able to produce at Imagine I mean, I've worked on so many sensitive, you know, I'll be a very tragic story, you know, documentaries over the years and people's personal situations. So I think it's kind of ingrained in me that these people are human beings and we're not just putting them on screen to perform for us. So I think, and I think a project like The Volcano is a great example of sort of how you have to take um, situations and people's experiences incredibly seriously and, and treat them with a lot of care, respect. Um, I know more and more in the documentary world, um, even counseling comes into the conversation with some of our platform partners, um, even among ourselves, obviously, as we're talking to um, participants. So we take that very seriously. And I think on the on the other side of just the scale in, in terms of dealing with people who are very well known or personalities or more talent, if you will, um, I think it's a whole other kind of level of how do you create trust, but also be able to um, present the fullest picture possible of that person's life and experience. And um, 
I think it's it's really about having a collaboration that besides trust. And just what are some of then your priorities over the next six, 12 months where are your focus is going to be lying on projects or just looking at the industry and seeing how that's going to evolve as well? Um, yes, I mean, we have some projects that are going to be coming out into the world top of the year, which we're very excited about. Um, some are kind of high-profile projects that we've announced before. Um, Jim Hen- Ron Howard is directing a Jim Henson documentary for Disney+, Plus that we're very excited about. We have another project with Apple that I mentioned earlier about the New England Patriots. Um, we have several um, limited crime-ish series at Max and um, and other outlets that are going to be coming out over the next year. Um, Another big personality sort of project or icon project that we haven't announced yet that we're doing with Amazon. So I think we're continuing to kind of push um, or look for the projects that have been successful for us and also seemingly successful to our platform partner or streaming partners and network partners. But um, I think it's, uh, we're just, you know, continuously looking for great quality human stories that we can really eventize. Former Telemunchen Group Managing Director Herbert L. Kloiber launched Night Train Media in 2020 with the aim of developing, co-producing, financing and distributing in-house and third-party TV series, feature films and documentary projects. The move, which came just before COVID-19 hit, followed TMG's sale to US venture capital firm KKR and shortly after, Kloiber secured backing from another private equity outfit, Seraphin Group, to bankroll the new business. The support helped finance acquisitions of UK distributor Bossanova Media, Sweden's Echo Rights and Salvage Hunters Maker Curve Media and Kloiber spoke with me at MIPCOM in Cannes about these and how the company's plans have evolved in the face of a rapidly changing marketplace. So my name is Herbert Kloiber. I'm a founder and owner of Nitrain Media, which I founded in February of 2020, um, three weeks before the pandemic hit. And... Uh, we uh, started off as a um, co-financing um, company for English language drama series. Initially, found a great partner um, uh, with private equity company Seraphin in the summer of 2020, and then started ramping up our our team and our projects. And we were lucky in a sense during the pandemic that there were a lot of stalled projects that needed financing and were kind of in in need of some helping hand and and uh, and that helped us get into more projects pretty quickly but we also realized that because we were only a small team that didn't have our own distribution we had to work with a lot of external partners on the distribution side um, which was great for for the start but we also uh, realized that we need to diversify our company um, quickly uh, because the scripted always binds a lot of capital it will take a long time to monetize and the risk factor is, is, is relatively high which is why we then um, invested in uh, Bossa Nova, which is a factual uh, distribution company that's um, been founded by uh, Paul Heaney, who's done that several times and who is a fantastic operator. And so um, that was our first um, diversification play for Nitrain, followed by um, the acquisition of Echo Rights, which allowed us to fully vertically integrate the company into distribution on the scripted side as well. So our own developed projects on the scripted side would then run through um, the Echo Rights distribution uh, machine, 
which is predominantly focused on Turkish language um, drama series that are selling <coughs> across the world in a lot of places that are complementary to the ones where we're selling English drama. So in Latin America, Spain, Middle America, Eastern Europe, uh, Middle East and, and, and Southeast Asia, for example, um, we were not necessarily selling as much English language um, as the Turkish drama would sell. So, you know, on, on the back of that very profitable, nice business, we extended into the English language distribution side, opened an office in London with about eight people um, and, uh, and, you know, um, became less dependent on external distributors working with us, which we continue to do for the right projects and where we have great partnerships, but it, but it gives us a little more freedom to be sort of in charge of our own destiny in that sense. And the last piece of diversification we, um, we had was the acquisition of uh, Curve Media, um, which is in the factual space, but very sort of widely um, placed in different areas of factual. Um, and that, on the one hand, helps us feed the Bossa Nova distribution machine, at the same time, again, diversifies our business both into production and slightly away from the more capital-intensive scripted side. So that's, in a nutshell, what, what, we've, what we've done so far. You talked about the fact that, obviously, it was challenging setting up during a pandemic, not exactly how you planned for, for things to be, but you made it through that period, and, and it actually presented some opportunities as well. The market's changed significantly again since then, so I guess we saw a, we saw a kind of boom in, in streaming during that period, but then that seems to have come to quite a rapid halt with the great Netflix pivot, I think it was 18 months ago. So how's the market changed since you established the company um, with everything else that's been taking place in the, in the streaming landscape and, and budget cuts, and how's that affected what you do? Yeah, so as you, as you rightly say, when we entered the market, the, uh, the landscape was vastly different. We had a booming streaming industry and, and, and exuberant sort of commissioning of, of scripted drama, which again helped us initially because um, it was, it, there was just more, more um, projects to be done. At the same time, these models proved you know, not, not to be viable, the, these business models, and I think there hasn't been a solution uh, found by the big, big companies so far. How to, how to fix that. But for our model, it is um, not a problem. On, on the contrary, I think for us, it is helpful in the long term and even in the midterm because we are um, placed to be more on the co-production side of things. So we, we would develop projects that would find a, a local European um, commissioning network um, in the UK or, or in, in, in other territories. And we would then find partners in the US or, or, or elsewhere to um, mitigate our risk and come in early, um, which for them, you know, is a much cheaper uh, way of, of securing content than uh, commissioning themselves. Uh, so I believe um, going forward for the next few years, the co-production model and the, uh, and the acquisition model or enhanced acquisitions for, for these um, players, including the streamers, um, is going to be, you know, right in line with our model anyway. So we see that as, uh, as an opportunity for sure. What about the economic landscape? You're, you're involved with private equity. Money's become more expensive as well. Yeah. How does that change things? Well, it's so, um, you know, given the economic landscape with rising interest rates and uh, um, us borrowing, obviously, from banks and so forth to, to finance projects, 
means that that now you know half of our margin ends up with the banks. Um, so you know it's 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 like a hamster wheel you're you're trying to um, get out of in a, in a way. But at the same time, um, because we are more integrated, you know more margin stays with our group, including the distribution side and in some cases uh, the production fees as well, where. Um, we are um, sort of uh, initially involved with, with developing a project. So, um, of course, it makes it more challenging. Um, but at the same time, I think we're well-placed because we have a very strong capital backer with Serafin, who is um, giving us the, the necessary capital to grow if we were to go into uh, more acquisitions, which might be uh, very attractive in the coming months. Um, but at the same time, funding projects um, is, is always going to be um, possible for us. Amongst all these shifting dynamics, we've, we've seen the studio backstream as initially withhold their content from the rest of the marketplace for their own streaming services. That's had a, a particular knock-on effect. And, and now what we've seen happen is that they're returning to the licensing space whilst distribution discussions and, and, and rights conversations seem to be opening up a little bit. There was a bit of talk in the industry a few years ago about the death of distribution and now it seems like there's a bit of a, a rebirth, you know, at the same time windowing is becoming increasingly complex. So how are you navigating that side of things? Yeah, um, absolutely. That's, uh, we, we have now a shift in, in the model where the streamers are starting to sell off their catalogs. Um, uh, I think um, that's going to happen over the next six months, particularly amongst themselves, where they're replenishing, you know, their own um, um, strike-deprived sort of, you know, content offerings um, in some way, in a cheap way. Um, but that's only going to go that far, right? So uh, at some point, everybody will have had the same show, um, you know, aired on, on their service, and 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 eventually, you need more content. But as you as you as you mentioned, the birth or rebirth of distribution was always something we had in mind. Our, our, our business is always going to be focused on distribution and um, co-production and distribution. And I think you know, that's going to, going to be the way forward, at least for the next three to five years. So we see growth in that area for sure. Let's talk about programming. Tell us about some of the shows that you're uh, most excited about that are coming through from your various companies. So um, on the one hand, we have that strong Turkish business, right? So we have uh, a huge hit on our hands with a show called Golden Boy, which is now entering the second season, which has a 40% market share in Turkey and which is selling all over the world. Um, we're hoping to open up additional markets with that show that usually you know, haven't been buying Turkish drama so far and, and using that as an introductory um, product. Um, we're going to um, focus a lot on, on format adaptations and, and remakes in local languages of these successful Turkish shows. And we're doubling down and investing in new shows because it's a, it's a portfolio approach in that market you know, of, of, of a hit-driven type business model. On the English language side, we're really excited about our recent show Inheritance that aired on Channel 5, which was the highest rated show that they ever had on the channel, which is now going into sales through Echo Rights and which is doing extremely well. We have uh, a big budget European um, show that's based on IP um, on a book series called Fallen. A lot of these big supernatural IPs are tied up with the studios. In this case, we were able to um, finance that independently and produce it um, with our partner Silverreel. And that show is in post-production. We'll um, show finished episodes um, at C21 in London, I believe. Um, that is a big focus for us. It has great cast. It has a great director with um, Matt Hastings, who did *Handmaid's Tale* and *Shadow Hunters*, and uh, so that is a big one for us. 
we have a great romantic comedy um, that is going to AFM in November um, with Lucien Leviscount from uh, Emily in Paris starring and uh, um, Sophie Cookson from uh, the uh, Kingsman film franchises. So that's a romantic comedy that I think will enter the market at a time when there is demand for films that haven't been able to be produced over the last six months. So we, uh, we feel very strong about sort of the finished product. Catch Me a Killer is a serial killer show for Showmax in South Africa that is now being um, presented to the market with finished episodes in December. Um, Charlotte Hope is starring from Spanish Princess and that is a true crime thriller based on a book IP as well. Um, but we also have a lot of stuff in development and upcoming that we will be announcing soon um, to go into production with for the next year. You referenced the fact that uh, there's been a bit of a, well, a major production hiatus as far as the, the US is concerned and the ripple effects of that being felt across the world. How has that impacted your industry or has it, in fact, as you were suggesting, opened up opportunities? So the, um, the strikes that have been going on in the US um, have obviously had a big impact on, um, on scripted production um, over the last six months. So for us it was um, not necessarily a, an impact on the production side because we usually do European or other English language territory um, uh, projects that we would then sell into the US. So um, on that side of, of, of the business, I think we were, we were lucky that we weren't impacted that much and that we are having finished product to sell into that void um, that is opening up in the US. At the same time, I think that in the US a lot of um, players do have backlog, do have full stacks of catalog that, that they're still going to you know, stretch over the next 12 months and, uh, and were potentially relieved. Um, not to having, you know, had to spend that that much money um, over the last six months for their own cash flow purposes. But um, for us, it again, I think, is is going to be more beneficial than it than it than problematic. And what about AI? It's the big talking point at the centre of the strike, and uh, you know, it's a big talking point across the industry. What's your perspective on it? So AI, um, which was one of the big issues in. In, in the negotiations that have been taking place um, is something that I think nobody really fully grasped at this point in terms of what the impact is. The area where we see some impact is on the dubbing, um, uh, where we believe that it's going to be cheaper and easier to um, dub programs uh, with AI, uh, specifically on, on, on the local language stuff like the Turkish shows, and um, that's probably going to be helpful, um, if anything, for us. But um, I can see why for actors and writers and, and, and also the dubbing industry, this is a huge, a huge impact and, and possibly problematic, yeah. Paper Cup is an AI dubbing startup working with the likes of Sky, Bloomberg, Fremantle, Cineverse and celebrity chef Jamie Oliver to translate their YouTube and Fast channels into different languages. The UK-based company, which to date has raised some $30 million in funding, uses a human-in-the-loop model, amalgamating machine learning with real-life voiceover artistry to recreate content in local dialect. Papercup Head of Growth and Marketing Amir Jibandi was at MIPCOM in Cannes earlier this month and spoke to me there about the firm's approach, the extent to which it brings efficiencies to the dubbing process and how it addresses some of the fears within media about the impact of AI. So my name is Amir, um, I look after marketing and growth at Papercup. 
Uh, I've been here for about three and a half years. I was the first commercial hire. The company's five years old and we've been innovating and creating our own synthetic voices through machine learning for the last five years or so. Um, initially when I joined, we were trying to identify where we should place our bets and where we're going to find our growth. As you can imagine, synthetic voices and, and kind of AI localization, AI dubbing could be applied in so many different ways from say video games to even phone assistants. Um, the quality of the voices that we generated were better than anything else available on the market and where we identify the biggest need uh, and also the biggest wealth of content is within the media industry. Uh, so we started to kind of downgrade our position within the enterprise or e-learning world and in the last 18 months to two years we've exponentially kind of grown our brand and the company by being able to partner with large media organizations who their specific departments have always shied away from dubbing just because it's so expensive. Uh, the turnaround times doesn't necessarily suit the content they're generating, like news content, for instance, it cannot be dubbed quick enough. And any other solutions that was available wasn't just good enough. It just wasn't good enough. So for instance, if you're looking at um, subtitling or an automated system, um, again, just using news content as an example, the quality just isn't there. Um, and that's where we come in. So ultimately what we've created is a platform where large parts of dubbing are automated through AI. Um, so the translation, the voiceover in multiple languages with English being the input. But what makes us kind of stand out is we have a human in the loop element, which means once the new voiceover is generated, we have a team of professional translators that can see the new voiceover in our dubbing studio and they have a tremendous amount of control over it. So it's not just looking at the colloquial terms when it comes to the translation, but they have control over the voice, the intonation, the utterances like the ums and ahs, just to make sure it's finesse to the best version that it can be as close to the original. And that's where we are today. Tell me about some of the media partnerships that you already have in this space and what is the technology currently being used for? Um, so I think at the moment, if we're going to divide our customers and partnerships, all of them predominantly sit within the factual space because that's where there's been a tremendous amount of suppressed demand. When it comes to kind of premium scripted content, they already have the dubbing workflow figured out, uh, even though now they're starting to adopt AI to automate large parts of it, the suppressed demand was predominantly within the factual and unscripted. Within that remit, uh, we split them into two. One of them tends to be organizations distributing on digital platforms uh, such as YouTube or Facebook. The other camp is distributing on Fast and Abot. Um, some of them use us for both types of distribution, but if you imagine the ones that distribute on YouTube, they tend to have uh, slightly smaller shelf life, so news content, so Sky News and Bloomberg or Insider are some of our biggest names in that space. Uh, where we have to turn around, you know, relatively sensitive content in, in very, very tight kind of parameters. Um, and then the other half sits within the media organizations that are looking to distribute on fast. So as you know better than I do, there is over probably 2,000 fast channels now in the U.S. alone. And through so many new reports that come out, you see the tremendous growth that they're projecting into new territories such as Latin America or Europe. And that's where we sit. So these media owners come into us looking to double or triple the revenue streams by localizing uh, at a much more uh, kind of scalable and affordable way. So that way they have a chance to compete with the big guys. 
What about, say, the partnership that you have with Fremantle and with Jamie Oliver? That's another another big one for you. Absolutely, yeah. So with Fremantle, it was actually very interesting. Um, at the moment, we work with them to localise the... Uh, they're, they're global talent shows, so Britain's got talent, Global's got talent, uh, amalgamation of all of them. We're working on it in twofold. We, 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 we're localizing it for YouTube in Latin American Spanish and also we're localizing it for uh, Arabic. Almost in both instances, they actually have original content in those languages, but the demand is so great that they've come to us to, in a scalable way, localize English content, so that way they have even more in those territories as they grow. With the Arabic content, for instance, it's one of the kind of initiatives to start building their brand in that territory before they start investing more and before they start moving into some other distribution forms, which usually require more investment, such as Fast. Uh, with Jamie Oliver, quite similar uh, in terms of that we localize it in multiple languages in order for him to distribute on YouTube. Uh, but what's really interesting is Jamie Oliver makes a lot of his, uh, a lot of the revenue comes from books, experiences, and some of the bigger TV shows. So if we look at it in a form of a marketing funnel, some of this YouTube content is creating this fantastic awareness and engagement with his audience. And that audience gets smaller, but more invested into the Jamie Oliver brand. And then you can monetize that in a much more clever way. Um, so that's the kind of part of the puzzle we solve for them. And are we talking about Jamie Oliver YouTube channels where Jamie Oliver with the use of AI is essentially transformed into a Spanish-speaking version of Jamie Oliver. I mean, that's the essence of what we're talking about here. Uh, absolutely, but the one thing that I, I think is important to point out is we're trying to not replace, but replicate what traditional dubbing would do if it was as scalable as AI dubbing. Um, so we're not looking to deceive people saying Jamie Oliver's now speaking Spanish. So for instance, we don't do voice cloning, not yet anyway. So we're not replicating Jamie's voice like for like. We have a large pool of voice actors, just like you would do with a dubbing studio. And we try to get close to his likeness, his intonation, you know, he's got so much gravitas and energy, just trying to match that with our AI voices. So people watching it know it's dubbed, um, but they don't know his AI because it's so good now that um, it goes past average person's ears. So what is the kind of, you know, what, what's the distinction, I suppose, or what, what's the line between taking all that vast kind of treasure trove of Jamie Oliver voiced content and just feeding that into uh, a piece of AI software and, as you say, working with, with um, you know, voice actors and synthetic voices, as you describe them, I mean... To, what what's the kind of the, the difference and what's what's the point in doing that is, is it just that Jamie doesn't license his voice no, to do no, that no not at all no i think i think i think that's potentially a, a slightly different conversation um, because the way which we train our voices isn't through the original content owner's voice We've pre-created these voices through hours and hours of voice training data using many many different actors uh, we commission our own voices, so we work with studios to actually get voice actors in to provide us with that data. Imagine someone like ChatGTP, they scrape their web for words, right? So our equivalent to words is voice, so we commission to generate loads of voices. And then we create these synthetic voices as, as an amalgamation of what the algorithm has ingested. And then when it comes to Jamie Oliver's voice specifically, so when we put his original content through our platform, 
the things that we're looking for are the likeness, the intonation, the energy, uh, you know, the, the expressivity, should we say. Uh, but then we match one of our pre-existing voices for him. We actually go through a casting session with our customers. So, hello, Mr. Jamie Oliver. Here is five voices which we think suits Jamie Oliver really well. Let's work on which one you want to choose. And then once they choose it, we have some additional amounts of control to finesse it, to make it uh, as engaging as the original content would be. But it's not looking to clone his voice. It's just looking to match his energy, his expressivity and intonation. Stephen Fry was speaking at an event recently where he referenced the fact that I, I believe you know a lot of the podcasts and, and you know the audio recordings that he'd done had been ingested into some AI software and, and it was producing uh, material under the guise of it being his voice and he had no knowledge of it until someone had brought it to, to his attention. So um, again, you know, specifically in the area that you're working in what's to prevent another company for example just cloning jamie oliver's voice and 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 sort of you know producing their own material in that way i mean the fact that you kind of use voice actors and synthetic voices is is that sort of a some kind of a, a safeguard against the kind of legal issues that are obviously rife in this area or is it more because you feel that you can get closer to a naturalistic version of that voice in another language? Uh, it's, it's, it's probably a little bit of everything that you just mentioned. Um, the most important one for us so far has been the fact that the market hasn't demanded it. So when these content owners come to us, all the ones that we've talked about so far, none of them are asking us to replicate their voices, not even Jamie. They just want to make sure they have a quality dubbed content, which is as engaging as possible for the audience to help them achieve their goals, be it revenue, brand awareness, whatever it is. So the demand just isn't there for voice cloning, uh, to be explicit about the term uh, of that technology. Uh, That's number one. Number two, obviously there's this big gray area. There's a lot of ambiguity in terms of uh, the legality, um, the the rights, all that kind of good stuff, which again, we're, 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 luckily being in a position that we could stay away from it because it's not part of our offering anyway. Um, if we wanted it to be, it's actually a relatively simple technology trying to replicate. So for instance, we had an unnamed content owner come to us, a big YouTuber saying, hey, I've seen all these things such as the St- uh, Stephen Fry example that you mentioned. I actually want that for myself. Can you do that for me? We said we don't offer it, but because you're this big caliber creator, we're willing to do some experiments and then in the future, if there is some of these safeguards in place that allow us to do this at scale, we'll be happy to entertain it. But um, yeah, those are the two different reasons why why, why we don't necessarily uh, tackle that yet. And, and the last point that you made around the likeness of the voice uh, being good enough or not, that is also a challenge, you know, because for instance, when it comes to training AI voices through machine learning, the quality of the data matters. So I can't just rip loads of YouTube videos and push it through our algorithm as simple as that to train it. There's loads of manipulation that needs, needs to be done in between. Um, but ideally, you need, you need clean data. Ideally, you need Stephen Fry to go in a booth for you to actually record an hour or two or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of all those three different elements for sure. It's obviously a very hot topic <laughs> and a very emotive one and it's at the, been at the centre of the, uh, the the strikes that we've seen in the US and you know as far as the actors who are still on strike it, it continues to be an issue for them as well so um, you know can you give us a, a kind of a perspective on that because obviously it has significant 
implications for for your business as well and what you're trying to do? Of course, um, of course, I've got, I can only talk about it from a paper cup standpoint. Um, so for us, we've we've been in a privileged position where, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, almost all the content that we're dubbing today is content that wouldn't have been dubbed through any other means. Uh, just because of the turnaround time and the price points involved. So this is the suppressed kind of demand, which was just sitting there idle, uh, which we're now able to enable content owners to distribute in multiple territories. Um, obviously, in the future, we may be working on certain projects that would compete with traditional dubbing, would compete with traditional voice actors. However, at the same time, we tend to work with quite a lot of them. So as I mentioned, we use voice actors for training our models. Apart from having very explicit and transparent um, kind of agreements with them in terms of how their voices are being used, we're also working on how can we make sure they have skin in the game in the long term. So uh, figuring out remuneration packages, uh, residuals as they call it, on how they would potentially benefit from any profits made from their voice on a specific content in the future. Those are the things that we're working on today to be able to provide them. And also, because we have the human and loop element, we actually hire a very, very large team of translators and localization experts and this will remain very significant to our business, which we'll continue to invest in as we grow. So even though there are some instances where certain translation experts or voice actors would very rightly so be skeptical about working with us, in reality, majority of people, almost all of them that we work with, once you understand the problem that we're looking to solve and how AI is not necessarily a tool to replace anything traditional completely, it's just another tool to help people to do things in a more optimal way. It becomes a lot more relaxed in terms of atmosphere. They understand what we're trying to accomplish and, and, and they come on board and work with us. The things that you're describing, you know, it is job creation, but the greatest fear obviously that, that a lot of, you know, actors, writers and voice artists have is, is that, you know, it, it ultimately means, you know, that jobs will, will go. And I mean, the whole point of technology is often to bring efficiencies and obviously dubbing, you, you've seen an opportunity, there's, there's a tremendous opportunity to bring efficiencies to the, to the whole process. So, um, you know, it, it will inevitably mean that, that jobs do go as well. I mean, and the proportion of jobs that go is probably greater, I'm guessing, very hard to say. Yeah than the, the proportion of jobs that it would create. So um, what would you say to that? Uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult to speculate what the future holds. We have some hypothesis what that might be. Um, so one of the, say, more optimistic views that we have, especially as we have better voices, which may be used on more premium content, say, if Lord of the Rings had another sequel, uh, you know, you have potentially 300 actors, right? Uh, in a world where AI is being used to bring efficiencies to dubbing that type of content, that the future that we envisage is a hybrid model. So you still have people that are masters of their trade. You have specific voice actors that are celebrities in their own rights in specific countries. And when it comes to that type of content, you will still require them to become the voices of the main characters. But then you can use something like our AI dubbing for all the secondary and tertiary characters to bring efficiencies, which in a rosier view, you would hope that would put, it would put more budgets on where you have the human kind of localization being done uh, because you have all these efficiencies elsewhere. Very similar to CGI, very similar to so many other technologies that have been adopted by 
the media and entertainment industry. So there is a rosier way to look at it too. Uh, I don't think I'm being overly optimistic to say that. Uh, I think we're seeing that in, 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 in production in so many different aspects of, as I mentioned, video. But yeah, I, I genuinely personally don't believe that it's going to be a complete replacement of what's out there. I, I definitely do see it as a hybrid in the future. What that hybrid may look like, I'm not 100% sure. Okay, great. And um, just just one of the things that we didn't talk about was the um, when we were talking about your media partnerships. I mean, one of the ones that you've got also is one with uh, Cineverse and the Bob Ross Channel, which was a huge is a huge phenomenon as well. So, um, can you just tell us a little bit about about that one? And again, you know, how you're taking essentially a, a, it's fast channels, right, and and expanding the the scope of those. Yeah, sure. Um, it was the most challenging project we had to date at the point where we were working on it, just because we had such tight turnaround times. Um, as you know better than I do, when it comes to certain fast channels, you need to strike whilst the iron is hot. You know, Cineverse, back then Cinedime had acquired this huge back catalogue of Bob Ross and they had a massive success with the English version. So we were on the very uh, kind of tight time constraints to turn it around but we managed to turn around I believe it was 30 seasons in two months uh, so that way they can distribute it number one on fast platforms in the US just because there is enough uh, enough of a market there there is 55 million Latin American Spanish speakers uh, in the US alone uh, that's almost almost as big as UK in some sense and then they started to look at how they can diversify that uh, because you had the content already. How can we, you know, monetize it even further? So working with other players in, in LATAM to distribute it further. But it was a fantastic project to, be, to, 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 to work on. Uh, Tony uh, Hudo, who was, or still is, uh, the CTO and now CEO of Cineverse, uh, he's a bit of a visionary. You know, he was um, taking a punt in terms of using AI on such a big bet even. Uh, but luckily it's paid out and that's, that's paid dividends for us too, using, using that as, as a case study in terms of how you can double or triple your revenue stream from your content that's doing really well by localizing and taking it abroad. And just to try to put that in some sort of perspective, you said 30 seasons in two months. So without the AI, how long would that process take to uh, put the dubbing in place for, for that volume of programming? It's, 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 it's a bit of a challenge to say just because we didn't do a bake-off our te- ourselves. But when we've done any kind of analysis uh, for more complex content, um, obviously traditional dubbing would take even longer. Uh, but if we average it out, we tend to be about four times faster than traditional dubbing. Uh, so if we did it in two months, additional dubbing would have taken potentially up to eight months at least. And presumably as the AI, the machine learning learns and improves, <laughs> that is something which exponentially kind of speeds up as well. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the speeding up that we're working on at the moment is trying to utilize a lot of large language models available um, and provide a lot more context when we're automating the dubbing. So when it comes to our professionals, translators, when it comes to them finessing the, say, colloquial terms, uh, the segmenting, uh, all those nitty-gritty aspects of dubbing which, which, which they finesse at the very last hurdle, the more of that we can do up front, then we can have faster turnaround times. And if we have faster turnaround times, it means we can provide a slightly uh, more favorable pricing. So absolutely, yes, but it's definitely more of a marathon than a, than a sprint at the moment. The company raised $20 million, I think it was, sort of back in 2022, which was prior to 
all of the hype around chat GPT and the explosion of interest that we've seen in AI in, uh, through the course of 2023 with Nvidia stock price going through the through the roof as well so you know what's the what's the roadmap for paper cup from here on in I think we're definitely in a privileged position so just to give you an idea in terms of the growth that we've experienced uh, in terms of headcount the company's grown about uh, 35-40% just in the last quarter until this point we've been very lean in terms of how we grow uh, just because we wanted to make sure we have enough conviction, enough case studies and proof points that this media and entertainment side of the business is the one that we want to double down on and we've managed to accomplish that so now we're starting to look a little bit more confidently in terms of how we're growing this space. So luckily in terms of the money that we raised last year, we're still in a ridiculously strong position, but our appetite is also grown at the same time. So um, I think it was in February, we the amount of inbound demand that we had through our website was more than our lifetime combined. And it's been kind of keeping steady since that stream um, at, the, at the beginning of uh, 2023. So hopefully we're going to try and capitalize on that growth. Um, you know, I, I know the AI boom is kind of weaning a little bit. The, the, the shine that it initially had, it kind of feels like the NFT era. Um, but it's definitely helped us in a way where before we found ourselves to be one of the only people trying to educate the market around AI dubbing. But now uh, there is a lot of other people doing that with us. At the same time, it's a blessing, blessing and a curse because... There is only a, less than a handful of companies that do directly what we do, including the human and loop elements of it and generating their own voices. But you have almost hundreds of uh, new wave of AI dubbing people. I use quotation marks because it's a two-man band that uses off-the-shelf AI from the big guys and then through API puts it in the house and then they call themselves AI dubbing. So even though other people are singing the same song as us in a sense, they're also muddying the water as well. So it's making it harder for us to stick our head out. So that's my main challenge as the head of growth and marketing is, is how do we elevate ourselves and make sure that we do get the message across that we work with more premium content. So the short answer to, 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 to your question was it's been a blessing and a curse uh, with this AI boom recently. Sort Of is a Canadian comedy drama about a non-binary millennial trying to balance their roles as a child of Pakistani immigrant parents, a bartender at an LGBTQ cafe bookstore and carer to the young children of a professional couple. Created by Bilal Baig and Fab Filippo, the series from Sphere Media's Siena Films was greenlit by CBC just before the pandemic, with HBO Max coming on board as co-commissioner. Platforms around the world, including Sky in the UK, Stan in Australia and France's MCs, have acquired the show from distributor Abacus Media Rights, with a third and final season due to debut on CBC Gem in Canada later this month. Baig, who is also sort of exec producer, showrunner and star, spoke to me at MIPCOM in Cannes about the evolution of the series, the decision to bring it to an end, and how they feel representation within the TV industry has changed since its beginning. My name is Bilal Baig. I am the co-creator, uh, a writer, an exec producer, co-showrunner, and actor in a series called Sort Of, um, which is a comedy-ish, drama-ish um, series that follows a character called Subby, who I play, um, as they move through their life, um, navigating transitions in every sense of the word, love, life, 
uh, loss, grief, expectations, family, all of that. And there's a bunch of cool characters as well that, that support Sebi. Tell us a little bit about the, the show's development, its initial conception, and uh, the way that it's, it's evolved into three seasons now. Yeah, well, we, it was all a bit of a whirlwind. We, um, I, I co-created the show with uh, Fab Filippo, and we, it all happened really fast. We uh, shot a, a sizzle reel of the show, like a four-minute kind of teaser, and wrote a couple of pages about what the world and, and tone of the show might be, and we sent that off to CBC in Canada, and we were greenlit in January of 2020. Then the lockdown happened. Our entire first season writer's room was completely virtual, and, and we went to camera later that year. Um, and um, we paired with uh, Sphere Media, who have been these wonderful champions for the work, and they really get it. Um, and I, it's so weird that it's ending, because it, it feels like um, everything happened so quickly with the show. Um, I, I, it was my first time doing any sort of television, anything, and everyone said to me, this is not how it usually goes. It takes much longer. Um, but yeah, we were, we were pretty lucky. I think we had something that felt special to CBC, and then HBO Max came on board uh, a month before we went to camera in season one. And so, um, you know, the character's evolution across the story the rest of the cast as well, and you know why was the decision taken? I suppose to to bring the show to an end after three seasons, which is a is a pretty good tally for yeah. for most shows these days. But that was a creative decision. So talk us through that. Yeah, it was. I mean, uh, we, you know, it just we talked a lot, a lot, a lot about it, you know, and we we leave a lot of the characters, but Sebi especially at the end of season two, in a very, you know, complicated, emotional place. And before we went into really breaking down what the third season was, it just felt clear to us that this third season would be so much about the fallout of those choices that, that the characters make. And it just felt natural, like it, a show like this almost can never end in a way or something like you can just kind of keep going with the the life stuff but I thought it was it felt really right that we uh, ended in a way where things feel like they also continue and also there's a kind of heartache and in, in the story that's like always been present and it just was a it felt organic, it felt, Fab and I talked a lot about it, and I really love where the story goes this third season, and, and I think it's, I think it felt right to, to move on. I, I think we're both, you know, in different places now than we were when we started, and I think that's okay. You talk about the fact that the series was, was greenlit just before the pandemic hit. We've obviously seen tremendous kind of social change that's, that's happened in, in recent years and, you know, accelerated, I guess, in many ways by that period and some of the other things that we've seen, like the Black Lives Matter movement and so forth, Me Too, um, the debate about representation in television of all sorts um, has really kind of come to the fore. And I guess, I don't know, how, how do you feel about this show being somewhat of a, a kind of standard bearer for that movement? Um, I mean, I think it's, um, 
I mean, I, d I, wouldn't, I would be lying if I said I don't feel the kind of responsibility or the weight of, you know, making sure we do a really good and honest job when we're presenting characters who maybe haven't really been seen before or seen in a, in a super nuanced way. So, I mean, but I, I did a lot of work with, like, nonprofits and stuff before I got into television and... It's just kind of in my bones to... Uh, I, I genuinely care about this stuff, and I think that the producers behind this show, Fab as well, we all do, and I think it's why the show feels the way it does. So it, it also feels natural in a way, too. And I mean, I, I think that if more stories like Sort Of can come out and, and space in this industry can be made, uh, for stories like this, I think it's great. I think it's really exciting. I think, I hope more and more uh, people can see that there is a, a universality to these kinds of stories. I get messages from people in their 70s saying that they love the show. And um, so that's, that's real and, and it's cool. It's a very brave thing to do to put yourself out there and in the spotlight and um, the show's had tremendous critical reception um, but I'm guessing that there's also sectors of social media which perhaps, you know, are not so positive. So, you know, from a personal point of view, you know, what, what's that journey been like? Yeah, it's, it's also like everything, I think, um, layered, fraught, you know, I, I, I knew, like, I wasn't so naive that, you know, being on a TV show would mean that I would still have the same life I have, you know? Like, I, I kind of, I was bracing myself for um, all kinds of reactions, and I've just got a really solid kind of support group in my life, and I feel pretty healthy in terms of how I see things, and um, so I just, I just dodge the stuff that I know, you know, the comment sections, um, you know, I just know not to go to certain places if, uh, and that's fine. I, I think that, I think that it's important. I think we only can make change when we take risks like this, and um, it feels intensely vulnerable all the time. But I feel like, you know, that's the profession I've chosen, so here I am. And how do you feel that the kind of TV industry, you've, you've been in it for a short time, but, um, you know, how, how do you feel that it's changing or that it's, you know, responding, evolving, or is it not? Is this a kind of a moment that right. we've kind of witnessed? And I don't know, it's, it's, drag race has been an incredible phenomenon, obviously, and that continues to power on, but... You know, how is uh, progress being made, do you feel? Well, you know, I think one thing that was really cool with how Sort Of was made was that I had no experience in any of this, and they asked me to be a co-showrunner and exec producer and the lead and write for television. And, you know, in my experience, it worked out really well for all of us involved, and I, I hope that that's an example. And I know I'm also not the first one who's kind of sideways fallen into this this work, but I, I hope that I hope that it I hope that that's a conversation. I hope people are like, oh well, if 
we can take those kinds of chances. And, and if, if the support is there, you know, I felt incredibly supported. So I think uh, my hope is, you know, for this industry that we not only find voices that we're excited by, but then we ask them what they need in order to do their jobs and help them give, give them that, you know. Um, I, I'm here, I, I just recently heard that there's, in the fourth season of Sex Education, there was a South Asian trans writer in, in the room, and I'm hearing more and more, particularly, I mean, I'm really tapped into trans community stuff and in media, and more and more it seems like the stories are kind of being able to exist led by trans artists. So I think, there, I think yep, there's some movement. Uh, you know, I wish maybe it was faster and more, um, but I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful. Like, I think that it's been great for me and I, I really wish that for any kind of person who's trying to do this work. And I'm, I'm hopeful that at least, you know, for the rest of my career, because I've had an experience like this, I can always, I can always make sure or try my best to make sure that I'm respected the ways I was on, on this project going forward forever. And I think that's important too. I've seen you in recent interviews or in, or in another interview say that you were sort of one foot in and one foot out of the television business. And yet, that, I mean, that was some time ago, but now, I think earlier this year you signed with Anonymous Content for, for representation, so I'm guessing your foot is more in television now. I mean, what, what, what's for you, for you next? Yeah, well, yes, yeah, I did say that, yes. Um, I, yes, I did, I did uh, speak about having one foot in the door and, and one foot out of this, of this industry, and I, um, I think signing with anonymous content. That took two years, you know. I, it was a slow decision and I'm so glad I, I took that time. Um, but I love my manager and we're really cool together. Like, I'm gonna try to focus on doing theater for a little bit and probably most likely in Toronto and then we can see kind of elsewhere. But I, I'm just kind of, I'm going back to you know, the person I was before all of this a little bit, just to see what that feels like. Um, and it's really cool that I've got a team that, that gets that, is excited by that. And we are, yes. Uh, you know, I'm not saying goodbye to like film and television forever. Just, yeah, I, 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 I think we're looking at, at, we're planting seeds early, early on, but there's no, um, huge project, you know, that's about to come out or anything. Like I, I just, um, I, I'm just taking. It was a lot of work too. I mean, that's also real, right? Like the having all those jobs uh, for those years while still in my 20s. I, you know, I've got some. Uh, it, it was a lot. It was a lot, and I, I'm just doing a lot of reflecting right now. But I'm, I'm around. I'm around. And yes, maybe. I, w I still would say one foot is kind of out of the, of the door, you know, but I maybe slowly am, I don't know, gonna go into the door more and more. Bilal Baig speaking with me at MIPCOM in Cannes last month. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. 
The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.